Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week's news from the parks has been dominated by the continuing spread of coronavirus across the country. We've seen such parks as Yosemite, Yellowstone, Rocky Mountain, and even Valley Forge close in their entirety. Away from the pandemic, there was good news from Pea Ridge National Military Park in Arkansas, where outside conservation groups have acquired an historic 140-acre farm with plans to donate it to the park. And Renee Agredano provided some great tips if you're an RVer traveling to national parks with your pets. For those and other stories about the parks, visit nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's episode, we talk with National Parks Conservation Association President and CEO Teresa Perno about the impact coronavirus is having on the park system, and check in with author Richard Louvre on his latest book, Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. The urban parks with the highest benefit for human psychological health turn out to be the parks with the highest biodiversity. I don't think that's an accident. We are desperate as a species, not just as individuals, but as a species to not be alone in the universe, to not feel alone in the universe. If you visit national parks to view the wildlife, you'll want to listen to this conversation. And Lynn Riddick concludes her four-part series on San Antonio Mission's National Historical Park with a visit to Mission San Juan. The ongoing coronavirus pandemic has placed the National Park Service and the National Park System in an extremely trying position. Many parks long have been seen as reservoirs of nature, places where we can go and rejuvenate ourselves. Others hold rich chapters of history where we can educate ourselves and learn from the past. But the coronavirus pandemic has upended the park system. And seemingly politics, which we'd like to believe play no role in the world of national parks, are dictating the management of parks. Some iconic parks, such as Yosemite and Yellowstone and Rocky Mountain, have closed entirely. And yet at the same time, Zion and Grand Canyon National Parks, two that are highly popular at this time of year with spring breakers, so far have remained open. We've asked Teresa Perno, President and CEO of the National Parks Conservation Association, to join us and share her thoughts on the plight of the parks and the Park Service during this pandemic. Welcome, Teresa. Well, thank you, Kurt, and thank you for for having me. Uh, It's so important that we get the information out to everyone about the impacts that are happening in our national parks. It is, and it's a a bittersweet pill because, you know, we all love to go to the national parks and and enjoy what they offer, and yet at the same time, this is a very um, sweeping pandemic that we're trying to deal with and and trying to shut it off. I mean, is closing the park system in its entirely um, a good solution, or, or should they try and manage it park by park? Well, I think the solution that we felt that made the most sense was for them to listen to the superintendents, listen to the individuals that are actually in the parks, working the the parks. Because some parks, as you know, uh, they don't have one defined or two defined entrances. So it's, it's very difficult and challenging when you try to close down the entire park. But what we've said is give the superintendents the opportunity and the, the ability to follow CDC uh, recommendations and do what's safe and best for their staff, 
and for the visitors. And that would mean, you know, certainly closing down some parks in their entirety, that it's just impossible to separate visitors and to keep rangers safe. And in some parks, that would mean closing certain trailheads, closing visitor centers, closing anything where people might congregate. Some of our more wild parks where people can go off trail and, and be by themselves, there might be an opportunity for hikes like that. But again, it's really important that we have these decisions made by the park managers uh, with the CDC recommendations as their um, basis. Mm-hmm. You know, the Park Service staff is very stressed and strained um, dealing with this, and it's understandable. Um, and and so getting getting answers of exactly how the decisions are being made is is near impossible. What what's curious to me is, you know, Yellowstone National Park, which normally is closed this time of year anyway because they're working on clearing the roads and getting ready for the the, the coming season closed the other day in its entirely. I mean, there's no visitors going to Yellowstone National Park right now, but they closed it. And yet you've got Grand Canyon and Zion, as I mentioned, um, highly popular places, and they kept those open. Yeah. So um, Yellowstone, of course, the area around Gardner and Mammoth do remain open normally in the winter. And what was starting to happen in Yellowstone was, of course, they were seeing uh, large groups of people coming into the community. Uh, It actually was the county and the local government that ultimately pressured the Park Service because fear of their own safety as well as the crowds that were coming. And, of course, they don't have the ability to handle if, you know, it should break out where thousands of people, you know, start getting sick, um, where are they going to be taken care of and how's that going to work? So it really was the, the local pressure that ultimately forced Yellowstone to close. But what we're seeing at places like Zion and Grand Canyon is that the Park Service staff themselves are really uh, pleading and requesting because, as you know, uh, a directive came out from Interior Secretary Bernhardt back on March 18th that really, um, you know, encouraged and gave superintendents the opportunity to evaluate each situation. And as part of their effort to, you know, limit uh, park entrance fees, we thought, well, that made sense in not having the contact with the rangers at the Mm -hmm. gates. But unfortunately, what they really touted was a move to make it easier for the public to visit these places. And so the uptick that we saw at places like the Grand Canyon and Joshua Tree, and particularly trailheads and places like Angel's Landing that is a very narrow trail that is very difficult to stay away from people, is all of a sudden becoming sort of an epicenter of visitation. And it's dangerous, very dangerous for the rangers as well as uh, the visitors. And we've asked the Park Service to take proactive early on and look at those places where people would normally come together in parks and close them down mm-hmm. instead of, you know, risking something happening to their staff or something happening uh, to the public. So, unfortunately, they have not been proactive, and now they have not been really listening uh, to the superintendents and the leadership within the parks themselves as to what's the best step. Yeah, yeah. I saw um, just the other day there was actually two search and rescue missions in Zion. And and while I've been told that uh, crowding has gone down, um, you still have these situations um, where you hope that the rangers can get out there and, and perform their duties and rescues. But at the same time, you know, they might be exposing themselves to, to visitors who have the virus. Exactly. 
And of course, they have family members that they go home to. And, you know, so they're bringing it back to their community and family. It's it's really, again, when you have places that are closing, uh, you know, all you know, restaurants and, and there's really, you know, no ability for people to get the kind of services they need, we should certainly not be encouraging people to travel well outside their home to go to these communities and potentially infect them as well as not be able to really have their needs met, which Mm -hmm. is also a problem we're seeing in some of these parks where they've closed down campgrounds so then people are coming into the communities uh, and the communities can't handle them. Now, as I said, getting information from the parks and the the Washington headquarters of the Park Service has been difficult. Um, Do you know, have you heard how park staffs are being treated? I mean, in in places that are closing down like Yosemite or Grand Teton or Rocky Mountain, what are they doing with the the Park Service employees? Are they laying them off? Are they keeping them on? Do you know? You know, most of them are still able to do, whether it's security, you know, just maintaining and securing the park. Uh, You know, some of them are able to work from home and and running uh, some of the the work that they do and some of the administrative work that they do. So we have not heard at this point of any uh, layoffs, but I would assume it's certainly possible that that could be happening, and particularly with in some parks that had seasonal workers. And, of course, it's going to ultimately have a huge impact for the upcoming summer season where this is the time now that the Park Service needs to hire staff uh, to really prepare and do the interviews and, you know, move forward with making those offers. And this is going to have a huge impact on that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, just the possibility that some seasonal workers from past years will say, you know, I don't want to put myself in that situation dealing with that many people and uh, risk my health. So. Another unknown that uh, ho- hopefully the, the Park Service can uh, weather it, um, however it turns out. We've got um, a, a stimulus package that the, the House is going to um, take up and approve, and um, there's word of a, a fourth stimulus package coming down the road, um, possibly later in April. How are the parks um, being looked out for in these stimulus packages? Do you know if there's uh, funding set aside for dealing with the maintenance backlog or um, bringing uh, more money to the parks themselves? Well, not in any real significant way. Um, so we think there's a small amount potentially in this particular stimulus, but we're really looking to what would be the fourth stimulus that is projected for the end of April, particularly to try to deal with the maintenance backlog as well as the impact that they're having with the loss in funds. I mean, so now that that deep hole that they had is just getting deeper. And so Parks were not in a situation to be able to withstand uh, this huge impact, and they're going to need help. With the work that we've been doing on the Great America's Outdoors legislation that would fund $6.5 billion of park maintenance needs over the next five years, as well as permanently fund um, $900 million a year for the Land and Water Conservation Fund, that bill um, was very close, as you probably know, to moving forward in the Senate We had tremendous bipartisan support in both the Senate and the House um, with 59 co-sponsors in the Senate. And so what we are looking for is to hopefully move that um, piece and particularly be able to show the economic benefit because so many um, of the projects, particularly within the parks, are Mm shovel-ready and could be a huge boost to the economy. Uh, for the nation and particularly in these areas and many of the areas that have been hardest hit as well. So um, we really hope that uh, we'll be able to get Congress to move forward with that fourth stimulus 
and incorporate uh, the important needs of the national parks and their communities in the bill. Certainly trying and interesting times we're going through and um, wish all the best that uh, everybody can stay healthy and uh, we can get back to life uh, normalcy as we once knew it. Thanks for joining us today. We've had uh, Teresa Perno, President and CEO of the National Parks Conservation Association, join us to discuss the current situation with the national park system and the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you, Kurt. And thank you and the National Parks Travel for all you're doing to help protect our national parks. National Parks Traveler, a 501c3 nonprofit media organization, depends on its readers and listeners for support in providing coverage of the national parks and protected areas and the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Please support our efforts with a donation. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org and click the donate button. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. Richard Louvre, who gained the nation's attention back in 2005 with Last Child in the Woods, saving our children from nature deficit disorder, is now asking us to not just pay attention to wildlife, but to respect it and to nurture our relationships with wildlife. He's not asking that we befriend wolves and bears and moose. No, rather, he's asking us to better appreciate wildlife, to strengthen our coexistence with them because they play such a vital role in our world. Mr. Louvre joins us today to discuss his latest book, Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. Welcome to The Traveler, Rich. Well, thanks, Kurt. It's nice to talk again. Why did you feel this book was necessary? Well, it's ironic because it's maybe more necessary than I thought it would be because of the sense of isolation now people have to endure and the the loneliness epidemic that has now been squared. So our connection to other animals, even if it's outside our window, is, I think, more important than ever. But part of the, it was just, uh, you know, I tell people this is the, of the 10 books I've written, this was by far the hardest to write. And it took me four years. Wow. And uh, I, I, I very much struggled with it. I, I had to go places, not physical places, but other places in, 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 you know, in my mind and heart that I, that I don't usually go to when I'm writing very much. So, you know, I like to tell people, uh, if you don't want to spend four years writing a book or more, don't write a book based on a feeling. Uh-huh. 
And this book was based on that. And it started with an encounter with a fox. It probably started far long before that when I was a kid, but the fox brought me home to that experience. And I was in Alaska on Kodiak Island. My son was working there as a, as a guide. And I went up to be with him and I spent the week with him. He was my guide. And I was on my way from a, uh, the cabin I was in across the, the uh, land to the lodge. And you, you got to really focus on what you're doing there because there are Alaskan brown bears everywhere. Sure. And you have to share the water with them, share the land with them. You've got to be careful. And um, so I wasn't doing that. I was walking, walking along the path with my nose stuck in my wallet, looking through it, trying to figure out how much to tip my guide, my son. <laughs> and um, suddenly I was stopped in my tracks, literally, in the trail. And by two of the brightest, most piercing eyes I've ever seen. And fortunately, it wasn't a bear. It was a, uh, a Kodiak fox, and foxes in Kodiak are some of the largest, maybe the largest in the world. And this was a, a black fox, and it was just staring at me. It wouldn't let me pass unless I went into the bushes. And we stood there for a long time looking at each other. It was about four feet away from me, I think. And I'm thinking, is this fox rabid? You know, am I in, am I, have I got a real problem here? Yeah. I also thought, does it want me to feed it? And later I checked with the lodge and nobody fed that fox there. And it just stood there. And I looked into its eyes. And as I, I described this in the introduction to Our Wild Calling about how, you know, I, I, I felt like I was looking into a parallel universe. I'm not sure what I saw there. It wasn't a reflection of me. It was um, another place, maybe another time. And it could have also been, in this way, a reflection of me, possibly just a projection from me. So in that sense, maybe it was a reflection of me, but I don't think so. And I don't, not, I, in, the case, in the, the case I make in the book is when people have the experience, these experiences, if it's a projection of themselves, I'm not sure that matters. It's still a sense of meaning. We gain meaning from these encounters with other animals and with our relationships with our companion animals. But these things that happen when we're with wild animals are particularly mysterious. And we stood in front of each other, the fox and I, for a while. And then finally, I stepped forward and it stepped to the side. And I said, I'm going up to the lodge. You want to go with me? <laughs> and, and I started walking. The fox trotted along next to me all the way up to the lodge and then veered off into the high grass. Wow. And I, th I thought about that later. I thought, you know, do I have to get mystical about this? You know, was, was, was this fox trying to tell me some great message? And I concluded at the end of the, the introduction, you know, maybe the fox was just trying to tell me to pay attention. You know, I think that's a, a very good point. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to live in many places where wildlife is nearby. I mean, we've had moose in our backyard. Um, we've got bird feeders that bring in flocks of 
of Grosbeak and Goldfinch and whatnot. And you can go up to Yellowstone and see all the wildlife there. And you don't appreciate, at least I didn't appreciate at the moment, that there are people in some places who have, you know, never seen a forest, let alone an animal in a forest, a wild animal. And so trying to raise the awareness of the importance of that question truly must be a, a, a daunting task. Well, first, let me say you ask about why was I compelled to write this book? And um, part of it was that this feeling, this sense of connectedness, I'd already had. Obviously, I've written now, this is my fourth book, specifically about our connection with nature. And But this, uh, I started thinking about my other experiences when I was, particularly when I was a kid, when I would have these moments that were kind of indescribable with other animals. Uh, I also started thinking about human loneliness, and that's we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. But uh, the the book really was a search for that mysterious what it, what was that with the fox? And I collected lots of stories, some of them from people in urban areas mm-hmm. that didn't get out to national parks that were in very dense urban neighborhoods, and in these stories that people would tell me often. There was many of the same themes. What is that? That's the that's the the search that the book is is to try to deep more deeply understand what that is in terms of people in, uh, for instance, uh, urban neighborhoods, very densely populated urban neighborhoods. I mean, in San Diego, there are kids who have never seen the ocean, even though it's twenty minutes away. There are teenagers who've never seen the, well, maybe preteens that have never seen the ocean in San Diego. Um, So it's not accessible to everybody. National parks are terrific for those of us who are privileged enough to go to them. So there are a lot of people, as you know, that that don't get there. And for whatever reason, distance or they, they don't feel comfortable there because of race. Uh, or because of their background, they're, they're unfamiliar with nature. But even in the densest urban neighborhood, this can happen. Uh, my, my editor is a wonderful woman, and, and she's the perfect editor for me. She's very much New York, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure she gets off the side. Well, actually, I, I think she does, gets off the sidewalk much. But certainly most of her time is spent in a New York City office, or at least was until the, the shutdown, or on the, the sidewalks of, of New York. And for three years, I was writing this book. It was very difficult to communicate to her what the book was about. And she kept saying, but Rich, what's the book about? I would get all frustrated because I knew what it was about, but it was very hard to explain. And then one day, she told me, Rich, I had an encounter with a pigeon. she was saying i was walking to the sidewalk and this pigeon was standing there on the sidewalk and i stopped the pigeon stood still i stood still i was looking into the pigeon's eyes and suddenly i just felt transported into that pigeon and i felt like the pigeon was transported into me what is this and i said i know that's what i've been writing about and (laughs) And what was interesting is that she'd just been reading Michael Pollan's book about hallucinogens. 
you know, he's uh, he's looked into the history of hallucinogens. I'm not a proponent of LSD, understand that. Mm-hmm. But what she said, and she isn't either, but what she said is similar to what Michael Pollan says or describes. She said, that encounter with the pigeon was was an altered state. I felt like I was, it was like drugs. And I said, yeah, Amy, and it's not nearly as expensive. <laughs> and uh, so she finally got it. And after that, it, it became a little easier. Uh, so it's not, it's not familiar to people. And the book is about a lot of other things other than that, but that's the central core is this intimate relationship we have or can have with other animals, including wild animals, mm-hmm. even if it's just for a few seconds. You cite early on the need to basically make those connections with the natural world early on in our human lives. How important is that? Well, as you know, the you know the four of these nature-focused books that I've done of the ten, the kind of the central theme that shows up in all of them is what I call nature deficit disorder, which is mm-hmm. what I, the phrase I coined for um, last, last child, which was about the, the, the epic uh, disconnect generationally between children's and nature, which makes, which is also about adults in nature. Not only do children grow up into adults and what happens if they haven't had that experience when they're kids, but also so many adults now, you know, we've had a couple generations now where that connection to nature has been plummeting mm-hmm. with a direct experience. I'm not talking about watching uh, animal planning, but that direct experience. Yeah. So the question I ask in last child and, and in the others is what happens to us? What happens to us psychologically? What happens to us physically? What happens to our social intelligence when we, disconnect from nature. All of, all of those things are involved and more. What happens to our cognitive abilities? It turns out that this disconnect from nature has real implications. When I, when I wrote uh, Last Child in the Woods, uh, I think there were about 60 studies. I went back a couple of years ago, actually counted the number of studies that I was able to to cite in Last Child, which was published in 2005. And some of these were about the disconnect from nature, but many of them were about the benefits, the effect that nature experience has on us. I could find at that time only about 60 studies that I could cite. Today, uh, if you go to the Children in Nature Network, which is childreninnature.org, which is the, the nonprofit that grew out of Last Child in the Woods, We have a research library. We've compiled summaries of over a thousand studies. Hmm. We just went over that a few, a couple months ago, went over a thousand. And we're still getting in about 10 or 15 a month from somewhere in the world. So studying uh, our relationship with nature and its effect on human development is now something of a growth industry. But in 2005, it it virtually didn't exist. There were a few pioneers, but, you know, we can talk about that later if you want to. Well, why something so large, literally, <laughs> the elephant in the room? How could the academic world have missed that? And the medical, the healthcare world. So now they are not missing that. Now, now there's something of a movement that's been building. 
We're talking with Richard Louvre, whose latest book is Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. We're back with Richard Louvre discussing his latest book, Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. Rich, there's a section in your book where you discuss the influence of animals on mental health and treatment. That was quite fascinating. Could you, could you go into that a little bit? Certainly, the, the, there's a lot of research, or a lot, relatively. Uh, there, you know, there's a growing, smallish body of research about animal-assisted uh, therapy. And it's about domesticated animals. It's about dogs and goats and horses, particularly dogs and horses, and, mm-hmm. and many other animals that are now used on, on, on uh, farms where people go to be healed. Uh, but also in individual therapy, ecotherapists are using animals more and more in their work. And it's it's growing, and it may, in fact, be the fastest growing area of mental health services. When I say that, I would include all those companion, you know, uh, you know, the companion animals that people have with them for their own support. Sure. Support animals. And they've declared that themselves. It may look official. You know, there may be a vest on the dog, uh, but it may not be uh, uh, official. In other words, it's self-medicating. Right. And some of that is controversial. You know, you get on a, an airplane with an ostrich or your <laughs> therapy ostrich, it may be uh, disrupting. But I was cautioned when I was talking to a a professor who is very good at whose name I have a hard time pronouncing. I can't remember right now, but he's at the university of Colorado and uh, he's really an expert on this. And I quote him in the book and, and he said, we have to be very careful to judge people who do that, even though they can abuse it. There are a lot of people out there abusing kind of having fake service animals, mm-hmm. service animals. You know, you have to, 
They have to be trained for that. That's an official designation. That's one thing. But these companion animals, that companion therapy animals, that's another thing. But he says we have to be careful about that because this is such a huge growing area of of self-therapy that it indicates something. It indicates something important. So I looked at both service animals and uh, the companion therapy animals, the self-medicating animals that people uh, have. And I, I, you know, I, like you, I found that very fascinating and, and at times very moving. And by the way, I think that this reflects very much a theme that is throughout our wild calling. And that's the theory of loneliness or the, the topic of loneliness in that in recent years, the medical community has been increasingly alarmed at what some call the epidemic of loneliness. And this predates the current epidemic of loneliness squared Mm -hmm. because of our physical isolation now that's enforced in some areas at least. But this loneliness uh, for for years now has been building among people. And uh, it turns out that loneliness, social isolation, is connected to all kinds of diseases similar to what one gets when one smokes or when one is obese. And physical isolation, emotional isolation is now about to outrank obesity and uh, uh, smoking as a cause of diseases, many diseases, as a cause of early death, Hmm. not just because of suicide, but because of all kinds of these other diseases that are now associated with human loneliness. That's attributed to a lot of things, including some of the things that are helping us right now, like social media. You know, so I'm not sure that's helping weeks, us. <laughs> just a few weeks ago, I talked. Uh, I called it anti-social media. Now I'm not so sure. Now it's helping us. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. but it's also. Uh, but I think it's rooted in a deeper loneliness, mm-hmm. uh, which is species loneliness. Uh, the urban parks with the highest uh, benefit for human psychological health turn out to be the parks with the highest biodiversity. I don't think that's an accident. We are desperate as a species, not just as individuals, but as a species to not be alone in the universe, to not feel alone in the universe. Why else would we look for Bigfoot? Why else would we look for life on other planets? intelligent life when people like Stephen Hawking have told us that may, might not be a good idea to find. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we are desperate to not feel alone in the universe. And this is the deeper loneliness into which our, in which our individual loneliness is rooted. So now more than ever, this is important to realize that we are not alone in the universe. This has religious implications, obviously, for many people. But aside from that, we're surrounded by a larger family of life. We're surrounded by a great conversation going on all around us, wherever we are, even in the densest urban neighborhood. The more we learn about uh, other animals, the more we learn about their sentience, the more we learn about their intelligence, the more we learn about their ability to communicate with each other 
and with us and between species, not only uh, within their own species. And we can tap into that, even if we're locked inside a house, if we pay attention. It's what the fox was telling me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, you mentioned the... Um the issue of giving human qualities to wildlife and, and the threats that that poses. Um, you know, some people, dogs and cats are family members with personalities akin to our own. They're not seen as animals as much. Uh, they're seen as part of the family. What, what threat does that create? Well, it, it, it threatens turning those animals into something they're not. You know, it can get in the way, for instance, of studying animals, of understanding them. There are a lot of um, uh, problems with anthropomorphizing other animals. And that basically means seeing them as us, as literally us, that you know, imposing our human qualities on, on them. There's a problem with that, though, when it's taken too far. And it's now become, some time ago, it became something of a taboo, certainly in science, and even to a degree in the wider society to romanticize, to anthropomorphize other animals. And as I say, there are problems with that when it's taken too far. I'm not really big on dressing up poodles in dresses, but, you know, some people are. Yeah. But I, I actually think that anthropomorphism is underrated. By that, I, I mean a certain definition of anthropomorphism. I don't mean the thing where the animal disappears in our eyes, becomes something entirely different. Sure, sure. To, to your point, um, last fall, I interviewed the, the filmmakers behind The Elephant Queen, in which they followed this uh, matriarch, Athena, as she led her herd um, from the kingdom, as it was a lush landscape during the rainy season, down to the refuge, a reliable water hole to slake the thirst of not just the elephants, but many others and many other wildlife. And there are points in that documentary where you can sense the emotions that flow through the pachyderms. And, you know, we are told not to project human qualities into wildlife, but sometimes that can't be escaped when you're watching this movie. And I, I asked the filmmaker about that you know, pointedly, I said, uh, you know, you're, you seem to be giving human qualities to the elephants, or we are assuming human qualities in, in watching the elephants. And he, his point was that, well, we do share common emotions. You spend enough time around elephants, you get to be able to read them. You can tell whether they're happy or they're sad. So I think, in a way, he told me, the whole anthropomorphism question is actually quite anthropocentric. These are common emotions. I think to deny them from animals like elephants would do them a great disservice. And he's, he's right. And, you know, it, it makes more sense when we think about an, that kind of anthropomorphism as empathy. And Franz de Waal, uh, who has written about this, has written uh, some great books, uh, including, um, I think it's uh, Mama's Last Hug which is about primates. And he breaks anthropomorphism into three categories. There's anthropocentrism, as you point out. And that's the assumption that you, as a human being, are at the center of the universe and all the other creatures are there for your use or entertainment. The second category is anthro, uh, anthropodenial. And that's a blindness to the human-like characteristics of other, other animals. And he mm -hmm. asks, are you anthrodenial? Are you in anthro-denial? 
the third one, which is, I think, like empathy, is animal centrism. That's an effort to understand and feel what life must be like for a member of another species. So one of the things we have to ask ourselves is, are we being anthrocentric or are we just using that animal? When we're anthrocentric, that's a lot more interesting when it happens. And uh, Gordon Berghoff, who's uh, a psychologist and, uh, you know, he's a, a, a herpetologist, among other things. He's really a fascinating guy. Several 20, several decades ago, he came up with, actually, it was about 20 years ago, I think he came up with this uh, method he calls uh, critical anthropomorphism. And basically what he says is, if you're going to study a snake, you have to sit with the snake. Mm -hmm. You have to watch the snake. You have to be with the snake. Uh, And there's two steps to this. One is looking at the snake, being with that snake. Conjure up all of the the scientific knowledge that you know, the hardcore scientific knowledge you know about how how that snake is sensing the world. What's it doing with its tongue? Uh, The second step is use your imagination. To the best of your limited human ability, try to sense, imagine what it would be like to be that snake, not you, but that snake sensing the world. But he says, only after you do those two things can you really ask the best scientific questions about the snake. I think that's brilliant, and I think that should be caught, taught in any every to every kid, every biology class. We ought to learn that. It's all about empathy as well as science. This is not anti-science. This is pro-science. If if that were taught in schools, say around middle school, that's around the time that kids who have an intense interest in other animals and snakes and nature in general. That's around the time that they lose that interest, many of them, because school turns biology into math. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's nothing wrong with the math of biology, you know, the the more uh, uh, laboratory-focused study of of biology. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is when that takes over and shoves out our empathy, shoves out our personal relationships, our extraordinary experiences with other animals. And that's what it does. But if this uh, uh, critical anthropomorphism were to be taught in our schools, I think that would bring many kids to this that aren't there now. And uh, it's something we can practice in our own lives now, too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And now, in concluding, you mentioned that society perhaps needs to advance to the symbiocene, um, the age of connectedness, where wildlife survives and we live in balance with other life. How do we do that in a world where we're literally squeezing out natural places in wildlife? What, what steps must we take to advance in that direction? Well, early on when I was writing a book, um, I realized that I wasn't the only one who was uncomfortable with the scientists and journalists and others who were accepting the idea of the Anthropocene which is the the geological age in which we're in charge of everything. It's all about us, all about humans, Mm -hmm. that we we so dominate the earth that we have to solve everything as well as 
just like we cause everything. And that, to me, always felt so uh, anthrocentric, so driven by ego, the same hubris which has created uh, so many of the problems that cause the extinctions of animals, that cause climate change. There are others looking at this differently. Uh, uh, you know, E.O. Wilson calls the Anthropocene the age of loneliness. What happens when we, because of the extinctions, because of our domination, we come down to only our domestic animals and us, if we're lucky, the domestic animals. And he calls that the age of loneliness. The eco-theologian Thomas Berry suggested an alternative, the, the Ecozoic era. And uh, Glenn Albrecht, the uh, eco-philosopher in Australia, talks about the symbiocene. That's, that should be what we're looking for. The symbiocene is a future in which we live in symbiosis with other life. Mm-hmm. We need to make that the goal, not have us in charge of everything. That you know, they the other the other life gives as much as we take. So, in order to have that occur, obviously we're going to have to rearrange the world. We're going to have to, and we are going to be in charge of our participation in that. You know, we have to look at having available habitat. We need more national parks, not fewer. We need to expand the current, or at least where it can be expanded, national parks. But we need to set off, set aside probably half the world for natural habitat. That doesn't mean we can't live in those places. Mm-hmm. You know, Ad- Adirondack Park in New York is an example where people live within a, a huge uh, park. And they actually have helped, the people who live there actually have helped to bring the healthy forest back. Not for logging, but for tourism, for supporting life. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need that also, not only for the um, extinctions that are coming, if if we don't act, but we need that for climate change because of the carbon sink these forests represent. But beyond what we can do, I think we need a new ethic. And I write about this in our Wild Calling. I I call it the reciprocity ethic. And if I could read a few lines, I'd appreciate it. Sure. Uh, Or it's the reciprocity principle. And and this this is a basic principle that embraces both survival and joy as we repair our relationship with the natural world. And this this is how I, I describe the reciprocity principle. For every moment of healing that humans receive from another creature, humans will provide an equal moment of healing for that animal and its kin. For every acre of wild habitat we take, we will preserve or better yet, create at least another acre for wildness. For every dollar we spend on classroom technology, we'll spend at least another dollar creating chances for children to connect deeply with another animal, plant, or person. For every day of loneliness we endure, we'll spend a day in communion with the life around us until the loneliness passes away. It's certainly powerful stuff, and um, we're certainly confronted by a challenging period in uh, our time on this earth. Um, Richard, it's been a joy talking with you. It's a fascinating book, Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. 
And, and hopefully um, one of your next books will be how we succeed in doing that. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Kurt. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. It's not every day you find a working farm inside an historical park, but we've got one here at Mission San Juan Capistrano, and it's unique. All of the missions in the San Antonio Missions National Historical Park have similarities, and together they paint a fairly complete picture of Spanish colonialism in the 1700s. Franciscan missionaries came to this area with a systematic plan to convert native people to Catholicism and secure the land for Spain. The top priority was developing farmland to supply mission populations with food. So to succeed, each mission had its own farm and ranch and Native people built elaborate acequia systems to irrigate the fields. At the end of the Mission era, some 3,500 acres of farmland were planted and watered by the acequia system. What's unique about Mission San Juan is that farming still takes place here, on the same fields, using water from the same acequia flood irrigation system built some 300 years ago. Mission San Juan is the third of the park's missions that was relocated in 1731 from East Texas to its present spot near the San Antonio River. At one point, it housed as many as 200 people. Running along one edge of the property is the White Plaster Church and the adjoining convento. A trio of bells mounted high up in arched windows stands out against the sky. The entire structure feels almost like a two-dimensional Hollywood set in an old western, it almost seems like you could walk around the back and find wooden 2x12s bracing up the whole thing. The church has been refurbished over the years, most recently in 2012 when work was done to stabilize the foundation. On the premises here, you'll find ruins of other churches, Indian quarters, and a burial site. And just outside the mission walls is a 40-acre tract of farmland that fed the masses. That field is still feeding the masses, and we'll talk more about what's currently happening there in a bit. But let's go back to the days of the labores and the people who worked them. Park ranger and educational coordinator Tom Castanos takes us back in time. Hi, Tom. It's great to talk with you again. Likewise. My first question is, before life in the missions, what did the indigenous people eat? What kind of plants and animals were available did they plant anything or just simply rely on what was growing? 
as best we know, they relied largely on what was available. Um, if anything in the way of just minor, minor gardening was done, it was very insignificant. So your, your plant-based things, you know, it's very seasonal. You have pecans in the fall. You have prickly pear cactus, the, the fruit, the tuna, and the fresh nopal, the nopalito, the young pads of the cactus in the spring. Mesquite beans off of the mesquite trees. Uh, sotal, the root of that, you know, the sotal. Uh, then as far as like game, of course, being along the river, you have fish and turtles and eel, which are not common in the San Antonio River any longer. Alligators, which are making a comeback. And then all the other uh, kind of animals on hoof that would need the water, deer, rabbit, javelina, brown bear that were hunted to extinction, but were still a big part of this environment at the time in bison. So what kind of tools did they use to prepare their food? This is, this is the typical hunter-gatherer stone-and-bone technology. So this is chipped stone tools for knives and dart points. The, the atlatl or the dart thrower is going to be the the probably the primary hunting tool for tens of thousands of years, slowly replaced by bows and arrows much, much later. Um, but no, it's it's what you make here. It's from from uh chipped stone tools and dart points and uh bone antler tools, things like that. When the missions were starting up, what were the first foods brought in and what kind of foods were arriving? Brought in by the Spanish, you mm-hmm. mean? I don't know an exact order of how they bring things in, but obviously some of the things that work well here were crops that were native to the Americas, just not here. Things like corn. Corn grew very well here. Uh, Corn had been grown in the Americas, going back to the changing of the grass known as Teosente down by the Aztecs. So probably North American crops that simply didn't, were never grown here, were brought here. A lot of Mediterranean crops do very well here, things like olives and whatnot. So I would think your easiest crops, your low-hanging fruit, if you pardon the pun, would be your first things, beans, legumes, whatnot. And then they began to adventure into things that they weren't certain would work here, and eventually wheat. What kind of soil do we have around here, and how are the mission farms positioned to take the best advantage of the soil? Largely, it's miserable. I mean, it's a very rocky (laughs) content, heavy clay content soil. (laughs) Where you're going to find the best soil is, is the floodplain of the river, where these lovely r- nutrient-rich soils get deposited through seasonal rains and flooding events. So your mission is built high enough in the low floodplain where it does not flood. Hope, hope, hope. Knock on that was knocking on wood. Uh, and then you've got access, easy access to these kind of nutrient-rich soils along the river. But if you go too far out and away from that, it gets very poor very rapidly. What kind of equipment did the early missionaries use for their farming? It's the most rudimentary thing. I think the, the, the thing that probably changes things quickly here is the advent of bringing up some raw iron ore or some t- iron hose and things like that to work this miserable soil. And then as blacksmith shops get developed at the missions, the ability to, at the, at the very minimum, a repair, but if not make their own metal plow blades, Doing this with a, a wooden tool or a, a stone tool is just, I won't say it's impossible, but it's impractical. The nutrient-rich soils in the San Antonio River Basin allowed three sisters to grow, beans, maize, and squash. Different seeds were brought in and produced an increasing variety of crops, chili peppers, potatoes, figs, pomegranates, melon of all varieties, sugarcane, wheat, and more. 
Well, we have mention of, of orchards, so peach orchards, things like that. Certainly fruits, even like strawberries and whatnot, are going to be brought in. And then uh, growing grapes other than Mustang grapes for wine, not terribly successful. Uh, but then ultimately, I, I think that the pinnacle of that is wheat, which the average person that thinks of wheat would say right away, it won't grow here because it's too dry, too hot. Um, but they found varieties that would would work here, and their and their irrigation was good enough to make it a useful crop here. I asked Tom to take me on a tour of the reconstructed gristmill at Mission San Jose, powered by the acequia and running at full capacity. The mill could grind a bushel of wheat in an hour. It was the only gristmill built during the colonial era here. It satisfied the Spanish appetite for wheat and introduced the grain into the native diet as well. So you've got this big hopper in the top. You're going to drop the actual uh, wheat in there. And uh, this lever that's coming in is controlling the flow of water in a large holding tank outside the walls, which would have been fed by the acequia, by the irrigation canal. So the more you open that up, the more water goes underneath the mill and hits the water wheel, the faster the wheel spins. The water wheel is attached directly to that top stone, and as the grain falls through the hole in the top stone, that top stone spins, it grinds it and spits it out this chute. With your basket and a sifter, you would sift out as much of the chaff as you wanted, and this is your stone ground flour. They could produce something that, I've seen some varying statistics, but they could produce enough flour for every mission in this community in a couple of days. You wouldn't produce it too far in advance because you had no way to really keep it. No Tupperware back then. Stuff gets in it back then. So you kind of use it as you need it, or you create it as you need it, rather. But this is the absolute pinnacle of technology. And more than a few Spaniards write that this was the final act of civilization. So think about this. Wherever you're from, and you go and have your magnificent vacation and you love the foreign lands you got to see and you tried all the crazy food and all of that. And as soon as the plane lands back home, you go and get that one food that you've missed for two weeks. <laughs> you go and eat at the Little Greasy Spoon Diner or whatever it is that reminds you and validates that you're home. For Europeans, it was bread and biscuit, not Corn tortillas, not the things that could be made from the crops that kind of grew here more uh, readily. But as soon as they got a variety of wheat that would grow here and a machine that would grind wheat, this made this home. Mission ranches were a second important producer of food. They were initially stocked with animals brought up from what is now Mexico. But the free-ranging herds soon grew and thrived, resulting in hundreds of cattle, sheep, goats, horses, and oxen. The ranches were located 20 to 30 miles from each mission. They were staffed and managed by the vaqueros, the native cowboys who lived, worked, and worshipped there. One ranch still exists, and it's part of the historical park. It's the Rancho de las Cabras, the Ranch of the Goats. Here, there were 100 acres of grazing land, a bunkhouse, and chapel. Not much is left here of the corrals and pens or the structures, but the land gives you a sense of the remote locale in which the vaqueros were left to work largely on their own, developing knowledge and skills as they went along. 
you're dealing with animals you've never seen before. I think as a kid growing up in South Texas, it's hard to imagine a a farm in Lytle without pigs, chickens, goats, and cows. But every single one of those are European animals brought here by the Spanish. So just imagine, you know, milking a goat for the first time. You know, goat's milk would have been the primary milk. Cow's milk comes much later. But certainly the, the vaquero skills, the very first cowboys of Texas, young Native American boys being taught to ride a horse they've never seen before, to tend cows and bulls that they'd also had never encountered before, that then would supply them with the leather and the milk and the meat that was a part of this new world. That you know, Every single element of that is new. I can't imagine, I can't think of anything contemporary for us where every single element of your job is something you've not only never done before, but likely have never even seen before. So uh, I think it speaks volumes about the the intellect and the ability of the, the indigenous people of this area to be so fluid, to pick up all these new things so rapidly, and, and not only pick them up, but excel at them. So let's talk about the earliest livestock that was brought to the missions. What mm-hmm. animals came first? Where did they come from? What were the priorities? One of the earliest and largest cattle drives in Texas is done by the Spanish, bringing cattle up from the Veracruz region to this area to begin the nucleus of the beef cattle that would be the the, the heart of these particular ranches. Um as far as breeds, I'm not exactly certain. I know it's not the atypical Texas Longhorn. That comes quite a bit later. But these are, you know, European breeds that had already been crossbred here in, in Mexico to be very uh, useful in this environment. And we do know that those breeds did very well here and those herds grew exponentially. Alongside that, um, most assuredly, thousands upon thousands of goats you know, the human consumption of cow's milk is a reasonably recent thing in this part of the world. Goat's milk is much more economical because a goat requires so much less to raise and a lot easier to milk and all of those kinds of things. And cabrito, you know, goat meat is was still definitely a delicacy and a part of the diet. So uh, goats and cows and then, of course, poultry as well, chickens and some turkeys. Tell me about the ranches that each mission had, and I'm curious about the vaqueros. Mm-hmm. So every mission is going to establish a ranch or two, uh, and they're typically you know 20 plus miles away because there are no cattle pens. These are free ranging cattle, and they want them away from the crops of the missions. Uh, so typically, what will happen? And I'll use Rancho de las Cabras, which is Espada's ranch and still a part of the national park. As an example, because we probably know more about it than the others, you'd have a small ranching compound where the vaqueros, the cowboys, lived, walled community because it also needed protection from other native groups. And uh, typically, these are going to be a community of very, very young native men and boys, literally 13, 14, 15 year old boys, led by the old hand, which might only be 20 who had learned the skills necessary, where every week they would drive a couple of head of cattle up into the mission for slaughter to feed the inhabitants. But they would be responsible for maintaining that herd for protection from other elements, 
uh, later on, the branding, that would be a part of their job. And this was largely done by boys, Native American boys. So I understand that the food production was so successful that the missions were eventually able to trade and sell. How did all of that take place? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it's a, it's a great tribute to the natives learning these skill sets that the Spanish are bringing, and then probably adding more than a fair share of their own knowledge. In spite of the fact that they weren't traditionally farmers, they knew the environment. They knew the weather cycles. I can't help but think it was not this one-way communication of information. It's like, hey, we're going to grow this. We need this. And then the natives go, I know where, where you can find that to make these things as successful as they were. Both the agriculture and maybe even more so the cattle industry were wildly successful because the environment was good for it. So much so, like you said, that what was virtually intended to be just the sustenance of the community wound up being uh, surplus. So imagine a hunter-gatherer band that literally is living hand-to-mouth in certain dry seasons within one planting cycle, or let's say one year, going to a, a position of wealth, because that's what wealth is, right? When you have a surplus of resources and you're not literally just worrying about the next day. So much so that there's suggestions that the friars were illicitly trading with French outposts for all the things they needed to make these communities work. So what lasting effect of the merging of Native and Spanish cultures from mission times do we see in our food today? Oh, I, I think the fact that we still have that odd blend of flour and corn, you know, that the, the, the foods themselves, although we think of them as being so, like, you know, local, are, are based around poultry and beef, which were brought here by Spain. You know, I, I mention all the time to kids, I said, you know, it's hard to have a McDonald's Happy Meal without Spain here <laughs> because the, the beef for the burger, the wheat for the bun, the russet potato for that, you know, the milk for a milkshake, although sugarcane grew in the New World, it didn't grow in this region. So, you know, you've got kind of your wild game and sweet potato hot, uh, Happy Meal without what Spain did here, you know. So it's not, you know, it's real easy to want to jump and go to like Tex-Mex food and things like that. But the reality of it is every bit of our diet is really based on that European changeover. We're not eating in large scale wild game. We're not eating, uh, you know, we get nopal in some things around here, but more more around Lent than other times of years. Uh, yucca root and things like that are kind of more of an odd outlier. So, you know, the diet's very European, and it's because of this. And speaking of a lasting effect, let's get back to Mission San Juan and its 40 acres of acequia-lined farm fields that had been dormant for so long. In 2017, park officials came up with a fairly brilliant idea to realize a long-standing but budget-impeded goal to create a Spanish colonial demonstration farm. The park would offer up these unused acres to the San Antonio Food Bank to farm in any way it wished. Already in the business of farming, the food bank would use its own personnel and equipment. In exchange, the food bank would make five of these acres a demonstration farm. It would grow the three sisters and other heritage crops and would only irrigate the way mission farmers did, using the historic acequia system. It's a perfect partnership. Visitors are welcome to visit the farm field. Park staff provides demonstrations on the acequia method of flood irrigation. 
and the food bank donates the produce grown in the fields to the food insecure in the area. In the future, the park would like to research, identify, and plant the exact varieties of seeds from the mission era, all to create a more vivid picture of life in the missions. When we tell people about the missions, visitors of any age, but I think particularly younger people, school kids, I find myself being very persistent about trying to help them erase the environment that they see. Because these kids have never grown up anywhere where there wasn't, and by the way, now kids haven't grown up anywhere where there wasn't an iPhone 7, let alone a convenience store or a paved road or a row of stores or a neighborhood of homes. But if you're here in 1740, this is the neighborhood. There's nothing outside there in the way of infrastructure. There's a Camino Real. There's a dirt path from mission to mission and on to East Texas. But they'll just, they're, they, they have a hard time grasping anything that you needed to have, you needed to be able to make. If you needed it from Mexico City, Mexico City was 800 miles away. So I think when we, when we talk to people here, our greatest challenge is to erase the world around here. And then it brings home how bold, how brave, how innovative all of these people were. I end my talk with Tom and make my way through a sea of excited and talkative kids here on a field trip from their school in Austin. And I think about what Tom said and try to erase the world around here. It is hard to imagine such a different life when every day was a struggle to find food and survive attack, disease, and drought. What did these now crumbled mission walls represent to a changing people who were willing to adopt a more established way of living and trust in a whole new set of religious beliefs. The missions were tied to the river, and the people were tied to the missions. And long ago, they worked together, shared knowledge, and fundamentally shaped the world we find just outside these mission walls. For National Parks Traveler, I'm Lynn Riddick. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. To stay on top of how the coronavirus pandemic is impacting the national park system and to learn which parks are closed, visit nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. 
visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.